This is Michael Cox for the Uncommon Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Bill Fischel, a professor of economics at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, where I also live and work. Bill is arguably the global expert on zoning rules that are used by municipalities in the United States to influence development patterns at the local level. I asked Bill about the history of zoning rules in the United States, and he described a shift starting in the 1970s from pro-growth to anti-growth approaches to local zoning. During this shift, homeowners came to view their houses as investments or financial assets whose exchange value they needed to protect. This in addition to the traditional use value of the house being a home. This shift occurred partly because houses were one of the few assets that kept up with rampant inflation in the 1970s, and because of some supportive tax policies. Observing these trends led Bill to propose what is now known as the home voter hypothesis, in which he argues that homeowners whose housing prices correlate with each other constitute their own interest group, and who, once they determined that additional housing in their communities would decrease their property values, decided to change zoning laws to prevent such development. This is an example, in fact, of successful collective action on their part to contribute to a local public good for them, higher housing prices. But this is also a story of exclusion. The only way to promote this in-group public good is to exclude outsiders. Later in our conversation, we talked about the use of environmental policies by homeowners to fight development by arguing that such development would hurt the state of the environment. There have been criticisms of this behavior as an example of nimbyism, or not in my backyard, basically describing behaviors of someone who is in favor of a policy as long as it doesn't affect where they live and work. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bill Fischel. Okay, so the the first question I actually ask every guest now, Bill, is what I call the origin story question, which is, you know, how did you find yourself on this path? You're very well known as an economist who studies local government and who studies zoning and regulatory policy specifically. Can you talk to me a bit about the path that and the decisions that you took that led you to be interested in that and then pursue it really for for many decades now when you think back on on that aspect of your career how do you make sense of it yeah i uh, um i got into this let, let, let's do the origin story here to start off with um uh, i went to graduate school i started at princeton in 1969 uh, I'd actually worked for a little while for Bethlehem Steel Corporation, which was uh, in my hometown. I worked at the headquarters and uh, uh, in the uh, public uh, uh, public information department. So I got to know people all around the corporation that way, but only for a relatively brief period of time. And uh, the main thing it taught me was I didn't want to work for a big corporation. <laughs> so, so that made a, an academic uh, path much happier for me. Uh, so I, I got into Princeton and uh, started in 1969. Um, I, I was not, I'm not a natural economist. I'm not terribly good with, uh, uh, with numbers or economic theory, uh, but I was curious about things. And, one, and uh, after I'd completed my coursework, uh, thought about a thesis, actually, well before I completed the coursework, thought about a thesis. And I thought it would a good idea would be in local government, because I'd kind of been interested in local government. And, and the or problem that I always thought about was, how do you get people to cooperate? Uh, this is kind of the Lynn Ostrom uh, question. And I thought about it quite long ago. 
And one of the examples I uh, had in my mind was uh, I like to go hiking and camping, um, particularly on the Appalachian Trail, and discovered that the Appalachian Trail was actually not a government project, or at least not much of a government project. Uh, it was actually done by these, uh, maintained and by these clubs who found a route. Uh, fortunately, it was in, in remote areas and the landowners were usually willing to give permission. Sometimes they withdrew permission and the trail had to be relocated. Uh, and, and I was sort of wondering how, how this, this fabulous resource that I really enjoyed uh, uh, hiking on uh, came to be. Uh, how this uh, notion of cooperation uh, 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 actually worked out. So I'm interested kind of in local government, partly come from my parents. My dad was on the school board. My mother ran the PTA and did a lot of volunteering. So, so I was a locally oriented person. And as it turned out, the uh, uh, economics department at Princeton started becoming interested in something called urban economics. Uh, this was partly because of the then urban crisis of the 60s the uh, urban uh, unrest, um, uh, uh, and it became an interesting topic. And one of the things about it was uh, how do local governments respond? One of the people at Princeton who was there was an uh, 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 economist named Wallace Oates. And Wally uh, uh, had uh, written, uh, actually just, <laughs> just, just published his uh, work that made him most famous in the year I got the, got the, to Princeton in 1969, uh, a, a, an empirical investigation into uh, what is called the, the, the Thiebaud hypothesis or the Thiebaud model, uh, where the idea is that local governments can be thought of, because there's lots of local governments, can be thought of as almost like a competitive market. And it's not so much that they put goods in the shelves and you go for them. It's you choose, you vote with your feet as the uh, expression goes. And, and this looked like an interesting kind of topic. Um, now, as it turned out, it was an interesting topic to lots of other people uh, at the time, uh, most of them with lots better skills than me. And, and so I thought of a topic that uh, didn't require quite as much econometric and legal th and economic theory, uh, and that was zoning. The standard urban economics model says that uh, it's a very good model. I mean, it offers great insights to uh, uh, people who, uh, who study it, although well, you don't have to study too much to get the best insights, is that you've got some central place that people want to go to, both firms and, and individuals. And uh, in order to uh, uh, keep their commuting times uh, down, uh, they want to cluster nearby, but that involves trade-offs between uh, how big a house you will get or how big an office you will get uh, to get to the near the central point. The central point could be a courthouse, could be a railroad station, could be any place that you have to go pretty regularly. And the urban economics model said the land market does this. Uh, land prices are going to be high, close to the central business district, that courthouse, that railroad, that university library, whatever, uh, that, that people have to go, travel to regularly. And, and so the land market is really what allocates this. And, and it gives you some pretty good predictions. Uh, but I sort of peeled back this onion a little bit and said, you know, the landmark is not, not operating in a vacuum. It's not like it's uh, just people uh, show up uh, and, and, and record deeds and, 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 and transact. There's another party in this, and that involves uh, local government uh, zoning. And so, so I thought zoning became a kind of interesting thing. And, and I actually sort of built my thesis on the idea that firms – 
uh, businesses, uh, which are, are footloose also, uh, vote with their feet as well, uh, as, we, as we all know, and some people regret, that, that they uh, not only have to buy some land, they have to get the permission of the local government. Uh, if it's a zone community, which in an urban area almost all are, with the exception of Houston. And, and so uh, uh, I thought, you know, I, we, we need some theory of zoning behavior. We need some understanding of how people actually uh, make decisions about zoning. And the current thought about zoning, uh, the, including one of my other thesis advisors at, at Mills, was zoning didn't really matter. It was there, but you just went down to City Hall, got a permit. Huh. Uh, if if you couldn't get the permit, then you did something, made some transaction, some Chicago style <laughs> uh, side payment to 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 get your zoning permit, and off you went. Uh, uh, and, and I'm thinking, I'm I'm in New Jersey, and I'm looking at uh, uh, various communities, and I'm thinking, no, that's not the way it works there. Maybe it works that way in Chicago, and indeed and, and the, there, there's a case to be made. It does work, work that way in Chicago. But in, in the places where most people live, which is in the suburbs, um, the uh, local officials don't just get cozy with the developer and, and make deals. Uh, there's another party here, and that's the residents themselves, uh, homeowners, whom I didn't really identify as the, the main principals until later, uh, but homeowners have a say in this, and uh, you've got to placate them. Uh, they have uh, some ability to uh, to stop, modify, uh, say not in my backyard, or no over at that place, or make it lower, or something like that. And so, and so that's really how I got into it. Of uh, I wanted to understand how this urban model was modified by by land use regulation. It helped, I think, in a sense. It helped in both. It was confusing. The zoning was undergoing a revolution just when I started studying it. Back in the up to about 1970 or so, when I started, you know, I started my thesis around 1971. Uh, the, the standard economics view of zoning wasn't all that far wrong. They they were saying, uh, yeah, you do have to conform to the zoning regulations, but if they don't conform to what you want, you get them changed one way or another. Um, and that wasn't a terrible model of of how local governments behaved prior to 1970 or so. And for reasons that I still don't entirely understand, we can air out a little bit here, uh, after 1970, in many places, uh, New Jersey and California and uh, lots of urban areas, lots of popular areas, that, that started to look wrong. That started to look not quite right, and we need to understand the effect of this extra party involved in the transaction. There's the developer, landowner, and there's the there's the uh, local government, and 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 there are these uh, these residents who uh, who have you know many cases legitimate concerns, some cases fanciful concerns, but they've got concerns, and local governments have to pay attention to them. Mm. Okay, so there's multiple threads here already, Bill. So you mentioned early on that you're not a traditional economist. You say on your website, right, that one of the ways, of course, is that you're you're writing books. You're not cranking out articles. And the other, as you mentioned, is that you don't do econometrics um, as like a standard part of your toolkit and you don't do economic theory in that way. And, you know, one thing to make sure listeners know is that when when an economist says theory, they essentially mean math, right? It's and it's 
And it's this interesting <laughs> similarity between actually I've learned in ecology, ecologists also mean when they say theory, they mean math. Uh, and so yeah, there's, and they've, they've got serious math. You're right. Yeah. And so, and, and, and to me, it's always been this funny idea that the, the, the mathematicians have claimed ownership over the word theory. Um, so, but the question to you is, is, is a social one, you know, the use of these highly quantitative and increasingly quantitative tools, right? You try to read as, as kind of an outsider, you try to read some uh, economics articles and, you know, there's 40 lines of like cumulative uh, mathematical equations. And that's become a very prominent way in which the kind of economics tribe signals to to, you know, members of that tribe signal their membership to each other, that this is, this is what I do. And so I am an economist and, you know, every discipline has the ways in which it signals membership. Did you particularly earlier on in your career, um, face challenges in, I don't want to like, I can just say fitting in or, or, or getting acceptance for your work because it was, kind of less legible to your colleagues and the people that you were trying to um, be in the same group with? I, I think it's it's somewhat to my surprise. I mean, I, I always feel a little embarrassed that I didn't know as much math as most of my people. I don't know as much math as half my undergraduates. Uh, uh, but I have generally discovered when I talk about my work and the way I talk about it, the economists are mostly grateful Oh, mm. oh, yeah, you can explain it that way, too. Or you can reach out for an example that maybe isn't there between the alpha and the beta uh, that you wrote down. And uh, I'll, I'll tell an anecdote here. We may be jumping ahead of uh, I got myself on a zoning board. I'm you know, back in the back in the early '90s. Now I'd already written a book about zoning, uh, and, and I talked to zoning board people. So I wasn't wasn't naive about it, but uh, I got myself on a zoning board uh, just to see, you know, be a little more intimate about this. Um, and I would go to professional meetings and 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 talk about this, and at least initially, unintentionally, would mention that I was on a zoning board. My credibility went up enormously. Oh my God, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not just theory. And so I, I think the big uh, economists are not so much just. Uh, you know, I, I, I was concerned. Oh, you know, this. I mean, I do a little bit of theory and I do a little bit of econometrics, but I was, I'm thinking, well, they're going to be distinct. But if you put it in the context of a story or uh, current events. Uh, Economists react like most other people. Oh, that's really quite good. That really mm. helps it out. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I, I think it, I think it works okay. You don't have to be. Oh, it, you are right. Economists do signal to one another and communicate with one another in their, you know, professional journals, the kinds you have to publish in to get tenure around here, uh, in in ways that you described. Uh, but they live their lives a lot more close, more closely to what I do. Than, mm. uh, uh, than you might think from looking at uh, the stuff they publish. Okay. So, Bill, let's start to work towards the '90s then, because in your in your in your work in in the discussion of the changes of of the role that zoning played, the 
you mentioned that as you were doing this initial work at Princeton, like that's when things were really changing. And particularly in the in the early 1970s, as I understand it, and a piece of this, right, is the rash, uh, the environmental movement is something that actually I had not appreciated enough um, before reading your work. The, you know, we have Silent Spring by Rachel Carson in the 60s, and then we have National Environmental Policy Act, I think in 1970, followed by, you know, Safe Drinking Water Act and a bunch of things in the early 70s. And you mentioned, and so there's several kind of macro trends that seem to be leading to the patterns that you're trying to explain. That's not a very concrete way to put it. But you mentioned that a lot of the theory had discounted the role of the home voter. And so it seems to me, Bill, that there's two pieces to this central aspect of your work, which is one is understanding the role of homeowners better. And in doing that, using that role to understand why zoning changed in the 1970s. So from, as you say, more of a kind of growth oriented model to a, a, more, a model oriented around controlling growth. And I'd love to talk to you about growth at some point in general too, because as an environmental studies professor, I've always been kind of knee-jerk anti-growth. I've taught a bit about degrowth, how we we don't need, you know, I've read books called like, you can't eat GDP. We need to not fetishize these large uh, national yes, accounts yeah. and think I'm about- I'm aware of them and, and sometimes I read them too. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm also, I've become in, increasingly sympathetic through my own experiences in Hanover, but also just in more in general to the to the ways in which the- the anti-growth movement can be co-opted. And I'm kind of, I'm already starting to answer the question that I want to pose to you. So could you talk to me a bit about how the role of zoning changed in the early 1970s and how the role of the home voter contributed to uh, those developments? Yeah, I, I think... Um... Kierke 1970 or so, and, and again, this is something that happens first in California and happens on the coast and is now is, is now a much more general phenomenon, although it doesn't seem to happen in the South very much for, for reasons that I find interesting or potentially interesting, that uh, there were skeptical growth, uh, particularly localized growth. Uh, and uh, 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 how did that come about? Uh, we'll, we'll talk about how that came about and then maybe whether that's a good thing or not. Uh, and, and I think... The skepticism came, some skepticism of, of modifying, substantially modifying, I won't say destroying, but really modifying your local environment is actually fairly deep-rooted deep in American uh, uh, history. Uh, mm. People are, you read about the, I mean, you just read about the Native Americans, of course, and you read about uh, uh, early pioneers, uh, this uh, this legend, I don't think it's quite a legend, of Daniel Boone, who uh, moved whenever he could see a cabin near him. <laughs> he was the Tebow migrant uh, mm. of all time uh, and, and ended up in Western Kentucky. Uh, uh, so, so people have been skeptical of growth. And the question is, why didn't they have any political footing? Uh, why couldn't they do much about this? Uh, 
yeah, you know, I'll, I'll give another anecdote. I'm hiking. It struck me uh, in in, uh, in in northern Maine, in the Rangeley Lakes area near. Uh, it's not Katahdin, but it's uh, one of the, the, the Rangeley Mountains south of there. And uh, I meet somebody. I mean, with a camp group, and I start talking with somebody who's a, who's an experienced uh, hiker and uh, and, and local person. And you know, it's admiring the view of of, of the of Flagstaff Lake and so forth. And he said, "Well, you know, I've heard that there's somebody who wants to develop a ski area here and a resort and so forth. And I think in ten years it'll." He's saying this. Uh, I think in ten years it'll all be gone. Uh, he was really pessimistic, and he felt there was nothing that could be done about it. this. Was just going to happen. Um, now. It didn't happen, and what did happen was much more environmentally friendly. I won't. I won't say. I, I know that it's more friendly, but but you can still hike this peak. Uh, this uh, I'm blanking on the name of the range here. Um, uh, in, in in the Rangeley area, um, and um, and preservation in a sense got got going just as we were talking. I mean, he was he was way over pessimistic about the possibility of. Uh, of wilderness or recreational uh, uh, hiking uh, preservation. And the Appalachian Trail, which I mentioned as, as part of my initial interest, uh, it, it, it actually became much more institutionalized, mostly for the better, I'd say, where the government acquires the property. You don't have to constantly move the trail because a landowner wants to repossess his cabin or something like that. So, so I think this actually got going, and and, and it's actually the, the very good question is why did it get going then? Uh, uh, what what changed in the environment? I offer in in chapter five, I think, of zoning rules a bunch of theories as to why did things change, um, and and one was the, the the baby boomers were coming of age and and were skeptical because uh, their elders were sending them off to a war in Southeast Asia that they didn't want to fight. Uh, and uh, outside of politics, activism became not only acceptable, but desirable. Uh, so protest and so forth were, were, were desirable things. So, you know, once the war is over and uh, you, you still got these tools where you can protest, where you can say, uh, something's wrong here, and we need to do something about it. So I think activism, in a sense, was what I won't say was invented in the seventy in the sixties, uh, but it was it was certainly a, a part of the background. The other thing that I think uh, uh, shows up is the interstate highway, which uh, rolls over lots of things. Uh, this is a this is the true pro development place. Uh, highway, you know, I actually read some stuff about highway engineers uh, who were, who were uh, some were actually hypothesizing, why should we actually pay for any of this land? We're, 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 we're bestowing some, such enormous benefits on these communities. They ought to pay for it. You know, you know we, they, they just, we're, we're just going to solve their transportation problem, make them prosperous and so forth. And in some ways they did, of course, but not in cities. Uh, in cities, they just added to congestion and they tore up neighborhoods and uh, people were ticked off and they didn't have uh, particularly, you know, the neighborhoods with people of color didn't have the, uh, the access to the, to the levers of power to, uh, to modify this. But then they started to develop this way. So uh, partly it was the interstate highway and the, 
the uh, tearing up of urban areas that that uh, generated some backlash. I tell the story of Marin County, which I think is the paradigm of this, where Marin County, uh, the Governor uh, Pat Brown, Jerry's father, says highways are the greatest thing I've had in California. We call them freeways. They're they're just and wanted to run them. You know, a couple dozen of them, well, I'm exaggerating there, but several through Marin County, build another bridge parallel to the, the Golden Gate and so forth. And Marin County residents who, unlike people, you know, neighborhoods of color in Baltimore, say, uh, had the wherewithal. Uh, their uh, representatives challenged them and they discovered, uh, I don't know if they discovered or invented, uh, a, a number of, uh, of federal and, and California state acts, uh, which we now call the National Environmental Policy Act and the California Environmental Quality Act, that could be used or could be invented to use to, to uh, stop this, uh, or at least modify it in ways that uh, uh, make it more acceptable to them. And they were successful. I mean, the Marin County is, is quite amazingly successful. It's amazingly undeveloped for a place that's very conveniently accessed to one of the major uh, centers of uh, intellectual activity in the United States. In San Francisco. I mean, it's right across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco and the whole yes, Bay Area. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm in, uh, I've been writing a book about counties, and so I start to assume everybody knows where these counties are. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I've spent some time in San Francisco in the last several years, and it's kind of amazing how much of it, given how much of it is developed, how much more of it is un, is not developed because yes, of these processes. Uh, yeah, so the Bay Area was a was a hotbed of this, and and remains so. Um, they they are they are trying to deal with one of the consequences of this, a very very high housing costs, uh, but it's not going away, and uh, and, and so it, this kind of uh, uh, this kind of activity started to look successful to other places, and and uh, took root in other places. Uh, I'll, I'll take New England, where we are in New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh, uh, people notice that uh, uh, that good environments are are uh, a, a, not attractive to other people, uh, and uh, they, they don't want to put some control on on the growth of their community. And so, uh, if you look at, I mean, I think I, again, I think I reviewed some of this in in, uh, in the Boston area. Uh, uh, Alex von Hoffman, a historian, a local historian at Harvard, very good, uh, did case studies of, of communities. And there's an inflection point in all of them. They are generally pro-growth. They have zoning. Uh, it's, it's, it's what I call good housekeeping style zoning, a place for everything, everything in its place. So we're not excluding apartments. They just have to be uh, along the, the uh, 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 the, the, the highways, uh, uh, our houses, uh, we, we want uh, nice single family houses, but they can be on modest sized lots. Uh, and after 1970, things change. The uh, communities themselves ratchet up their zoning requirements. Uh, they are responding to the environmental concerns about wetlands, and that's a wet place. Uh, same glacier that rolled over us, rolled over them, left lots of pools and wetlands, and uh, so preserving wetlands became a deal. And you start to add these things up, uh, 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 and uh, you have a movement that uh, is generally, I think, locally controlled and to, to a large extent spontaneously generated, that is, people are concerned about this. So it's not 
in, 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 in these communities, some of them are concerned about, you know, the interstate highway coming through and so forth. They want to keep it out uh, or move it around some ways. Uh, but even the communities that aren't affected are very much concerned with the effect of land use change uh, on, on their communities. And I ultimately concluded, when I first started writing about this, I didn't glom entirely on housing values, uh, ultimately on housing values. So why did the housing value thing come up? I'll ask my own question and try and answer this. Why does it come up in the, in the 70s? I think there are two reasons. One is, and this is a macro reason, it says inflation came early, it came in the 1970s. The, the, the OPEC uh, oil embargo, which drove up oil prices, as you've heard of that, um, and, and touched off a kind of inflation that people didn't understand very well. Uh, wartime inflation, we understood. Supply was constrained and, uh, and demand was up, and so prices would go up rapidly. But we, you know, the war was over. It was, it was, it was peacetime, uh, uh, but we had very high inflation. If you, if you are a person of some means that is you don't have to eat your paycheck every month i mean there's a lot of people like that but if you're a person one of the things you want to do is be able to save for the future you want to save for retirement medical emergencies kids go to college that sort of thing and one of the things about inflation is it really is it's hard on your bank account you're getting three percent interest and inflation is up there at seven eight percent you're losing money for every money and dollar you put in. So you need an asset. Now, if you're rich, you can buy lots of assets who go up in price. You can find the right stocks that are indexed and you can find assets. You can buy bullion, you can buy uh, uh, artwork and things like this. But if you're a sort of middle-class person, there's really one asset that you can buy that will keep you ahead of inflation and that's owning a house. So a house, which there's home ownership is, is sort of almost a default arrangement for housing. Uh, back in the Depression, when they had conferences about homeownership, about, about housing, it was all about single-family houses, building them and living in them and making them affordable. Uh, it was virtually no thought given. I mean, apartments existed and they were good things and so forth, but, but the housing crisis of the Depression uh, uh, and, and the post-war uh, response to it post-World War II were responsible. It was built more single-family houses. And for the most part, these houses were not terrible investments, but they weren't great investments. Because if you looked at the chart, uh, the Case-Shiller Index, you look it up in Wikipedia, uh, and after World War II, it goes up a lot because of inflation. And then uh, the, the Levitt brothers and so forth get building single-family houses in the suburbs. And they're so successful that the housing price starts going down in real terms. So housing, you, you houses are something you can live in. It's a nice place to do. You get connected with your neighborhood uh, and it holds its value, but not terribly well. When you have inflation, housing doesn't just hold its value. It goes up faster than other values. And there's two reasons for that. Both are related to the federal tax system. And I say the federal tax system, not the local tax system. Local tax system taxes housing, uh, and, and mm -hmm. more or less fairly, I think. Uh, you know, maybe some people would say less, uh, 
but but it does you know property tax is not not an encourager of housing the income the us income tax is a major encourager of housing as an asset and almost everybody of me of modest moderate means even high means uh, borrows money to build a house to buy a house i should say uh, so they get a mortgage and you pay off this mortgage over time. Um, and, and, and one of the great inventions of the, of the new deal was the level payment mortgage. You just send your money to the bank every month and then wait 30 years and your house is paid for. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and the big deal of that, unlike other kinds of payments you would do if you're a business is that, uh, uh, the interest, uh, the interest on that is deductible from your income tax. Now, if your income tax is negligible, then the deduction of that payment isn't a big deal. But if you're middle class and wages are going up and your income's going up, well, that deduction starts to mean something to you. And so as, as interest rates, as, as inflation goes up, buying a house becomes more attractive. And so people can get these level payment mortgages is almost, you know, it's a good deal and it becomes a better deal. You can hedge against inflation by buying a house. Chip Case used to say, he was a friend of mine, died a couple of years ago, taught at Wellesley. Uh, and he said, you know, back in the 80s, he was speaking of the, of the, of the spirit, the only thing dumber than not buying a house was not buying two houses. Uh, it, they, they, they lived in the Boston suburbs and uh, you, you just bought a house. The other thing, and I think actually more important, is that housing, the appreciation you get on housing is generally not counted as part of your income. Now, that was kind of always the case before the 70s, but when you sold your house, you had to pay something. You, know, you owed the government money just as if you'd bought a piece of artwork and it went up in value and you sold it. And you, you, you know, that was income, it was taxable income. That gradually, and sometimes dramatically actually, became almost tax-free. That is, you can buy a house and if you buy a house with a spouse uh, and you sell it for half a million dollars, that half a million dollars is completely untaxed. And you can arrange, by the way, the half a million dollars is sort of a floor. You can actually arrange your affairs. I, I was shocked to discover when when I did some estate planning to, you, to, to actually get get a larger deduction. So so my heirs are going to be extremely well off uh, without having to pay much taxes on this. Uh, I frankly think that's scandalous. That's really a subsidy to the rich, uh, to the people who've accidentally done well, but it works back into your mind as a homeowner. Mm -hmm. You start to think, man, this is my big asset. It's a hedge against deflation. That's nice. I like that. But it's really a big source of wealth. This is something I could pay for my kids' college with. This is something that I can take that round-the-world trip when I retire on, uh, either sell it or borrow against it. It's really an important asset. And so this is the moment, or not, you know, we'll say the moment, this is the general time when zoning hearings become interesting to people. Zoning hearings, it was, you know, I've, I've 
some of the records of zoning hearings in the in the old days, and they're attended by almost nobody. And so this story about the developers just following the rules or getting the rules bent in their favor is not implausible at all. Uh, and that's because nobody's motivated to go to the zoning meeting. The homeowners, yeah, they don't want their community trashed. And generally speaking, the zoning board and planning board don't want to do that either. And so the developers do have to behave but to some, some extent. But if you want to stop growth entirely, if you want to modify it seriously, um, uh, you have to you have to get some some people to turn out to the town meeting, to the planning board, to the zoning board, and now they have a motive to turn out. Now it's not hard to go up and down the street and say they're planning to have a subdivision in that woods that we like behind our house, behind our houses. We need to protest this. We need to make sure that that we're not badly affected by it, or maybe even change the zoning so we can preserve more of it, make the lots larger, uh, make them cluster the housing. There's lots of things you can do to uh, to uh, get in the way of, of, inadvertently perhaps, but getting the way of, of, of building more housing and, and doing other developments that would have sailed through pretty much when people didn't turn out to these meetings, when people didn't show up, didn't show up much interest. And if the planning board or zoning board and, and city hall ignore you, you can start running people for the, their offices. You can get yourself on these boards. You can do that at local government. It's harder to do at state government. Mm. It's a big campaign to get on a board. You have to know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody and pay lots of contributions and things like this. Or you can run for office and that's, that's a full-time job. Uh, but at a local level, you could. this is a part-time activity. You can get, as I did myself, uh, for, uh, for kind of different reasons, but uh, got myself on a zoning board, and, uh, and you can have impacts on policies, or at least the implementation of those policies, uh, that, uh, they, that you can't get at other places. The cumulative effect of this, I think, was... was uh, uh, Higher housing prices. Now, here's what I have a hard time selling to, to my economists who say, okay, Bill, we've, you've convinced us that zoning matters. We can't just shove it to one side. Uh, uh, Eddie Glazer at Harvard now believes this. Uh, uh, he's a, a, a leading urban economist. And uh, what I can't quite convince them of, or and, and maybe it's just too hard for, to, to model, is that Zoning itself, to the extent that it's successful in slowing growth and raising housing prices, generates more political interest in this. So if my house price goes up, I just I was on the zoning board. I'm looking at a piece of vacant land. It's very difficult to develop in rural Hanover, uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm wondering. How, and so I get the property record for this. In the space of the last 20 years, it's doubled like every five years in value with nothing on it and not much prospect to do anything with. It's become that valuable just because it's a piece of land where you might be able to put a house despite all of the environmental wetlands problems, serious ones, actually. I uh, you know, don't, don't want to uh, minimize these, these issues. Uh, uh, and, and that gets your attention. That gets the attention of both the landowner, who will put more effort into it, but it also gets the attention of uh, maybe the neighbors who are saying, 
you know, our house is getting pretty valuable. They're going to put up something that doesn't look quite right in my neighborhood. Maybe the trajectory of the housing growth, which I've, which has made me rich, uh, even though I don't deserve it, uh, made me rich and, and, and affected all my life planning. Maybe I ought to show up and, uh, and, and say something or maybe hire an attorney to say something about this. So so I, I think just the fact of growth itself, the fact of growth itself generates opposition. The opposition generates more housing price growth, which puts more pressure on housing prices. So that's my dynamic story. And, and this is where uh, I, I wish I were a better mathematician so I could model this stuff. Uh, there is a dynamic control theory, uh, at least I've heard of. Uh, but I haven't I haven't uh, seen any graduate students uh, that, that are interested in this, mostly because I don't have any. OK, so, I mean, several pieces of this bill um, that I want to highlight are the transition from seeing a house for its use value to seeing it for its exchange value. Right. So it transitions as it becomes an asset. And I've been doing a bit of research on a transition in the forestry sector in the United States where all the forestry companies in the US used to be vertically integrated, like Weyerhaeuser, Plum Creek, et cetera. And there was this transition to um, what are called timber investment management organizations and well, real, real estate investment trusts are not just about forestry, but, and that transition created a whole new asset class of forest land. And so suddenly that was something you could buy and sell as an investor to, as you said, I mean, what do you do as an investor? Well, you want to make money. You also want to hedge against inflation, other risks. And it actually, there's this interesting theory that well, it's not just a theory. It's been shown empirically that forests as an asset class are a good hedge against inflation because they tend to, to kind of rise with it or beat it, as you said, with respect to housing as well. So there's like a really interesting parallel here. I mean, to me, it's interesting from kind of an environmental management and governance perspective, this shift from viewing the environment or the place of the part of the environment we have access to intrinsically. You know, I, I value my house because it's where I grew up or it's I have really formative experiences there to viewing it very much instrumentally or extrinsically as what is the market value for this and how do I optimize my behavior for that market value? I mean, this has happened in many places. It actually has happened because of cat share policy in the fisheries sector in the United States as well. You can now invest in um, rights to fish and you can that, that is its own like asset class as well. So it's, this is happening in many places. So the, the homeowners who now view their house as an asset with, with exchange value that they want to optimize for, that creates essentially, and, and this is your terminology, a collective interest among a set of homeowners so in the parlance of, of the commons field, we talk a lot about collective action and collective action problems. And this is, seems to be essentially almost like a public good for these folks. If we work together to combat growth in our area, that will raise all our house, our, all of the exchange value of all our properties. And so how do we work together to do this? And so it creates this really strong incentive for folks to work together but in a way that actually is, is exclusionary to other folks joining that community. How is that yes. as a kind of rephrasing? Okay. I think that's a good rephrasing of it. Uh, I, I, as 
So I started out, I said, I was interested in this problem of collective action. How do you get all these hiking clubs to put string together the Appalachian Trail? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Benton McKay provided the, the framework, but you had to do it. There's not people on the ground. And and what's the motive here for homeowners who were formerly relatively dormant? You know, mm -hmm. they might complain about this, you know, bulldoze forest up the way, but they don't have any allies uh, uh, to, to show up to help. And they don't, don't have many tools legal or political to, to, to combat it. How do they overcome this? And and I think the methods that 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 uh, that I described of uh they're in neighborhoods, they're they know each other, uh their kids go to school together, they start a conversation about this and say, you know, can we do something about preserving this farm field over here that's gonna be sprouting houses instead of corn? Uh and and somebody says, well, you know, I've heard about, uh, 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 I, I know somebody on the planning board or I know uh, somebody on the city council. Uh, and I've heard that some other communities can do can do this either by purchasing or or by uh, changing the zoning uh, to to prevent this from happening. Yeah. When this happens, I think so. So there's there's always been a fertile area within local government just because of the 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 major social capital that people have in 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 their communities, which I, I think, by the way, this is another line here. I think it is actually generated by public schools. Um, so people sending their kids all to the same school in the same area generates a lot of local social capital. Mm. Uh, even if you don't have kids in school, you, you participate in that social capital. At any rate, so, so that's a very fertile ground. Once you get some tools to help stop this the activism that, that uh, came up in the 60s and and, and discovered you, you don't have to be thought of as a fool to go and protest a government policy you may be considered a hero in fact um uh and the other was that the tools that the environmental movement provided perhaps inadvertently to stop these things uh 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 I, I, I mentioned and and uh, in in that paper I sent the, uh, the rise of the home voters that there was there are some serious environmental entrepreneurs uh, I think David Browder was one of them I, I mentioned here who was uh, 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 on the board of the Sierra Club if I'm not mistaken and uh, and re and realized that the Sierra Club was this kind of Fuzzy-headed people who like going up into the into the mountains and communing with nature and 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 reading John Muir and so forth, uh, uh, but there weren't enough of them, and they didn't have much uh, uh, much influence. I mean, they were they're well-off people, but they they weren't united along a, a, a line that would influence politics very much. And he discovered that hey, there are a lot of people interested in the environment in their backyards. Uh, and so the, you know, it's a couple of books about, I think, Adam Rome, about the the, the, uh, the environmental movement as a local, a hyper-localized movement where people are concerned about the, the, the lizards, the salamanders in the streams uh, in their backyards. And Browder, uh, I think I've got, is, is it Brower or Browder? I mean, it's, uh, 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 founded Friends of the Earth with a motto that I think is utterly brilliant, utterly, you know, problematic, but still brilliant, which was 
Think global, act local. Acting local to help the environment is kind of what we're trying to do when we 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 decide the the, the town should support uh, uh, solar energy and things like that. Acting local also mobilizes folks to defend their backyards. So when they say not in their, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the notion of not in my backyard, uh, NIMBY, uh, I, I, I used to have to explain what the acronym meant, uh, and I don't anymore, mostly, uh, 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 is, is, is not necessarily a pejorative thing. I mean, these people are getting together they right. don't have good political organization. Those developers have good political organization. And uh, if you want to prevent something that's that's going to be very bad for the environment, uh, in my mind, NIMBYs are not a bad thing, maybe, maybe heroic thing. Um, but like almost all good things, you can take it too far. And I think the too farness has gone because so many of those backyards are owned by people and I don't think they're necessarily different people than before, owned by people who think about their house not just as a nice place, which has salamanders in the creek in the backyard, but as an asset that will go up in value and the government will uh, uh, will, will keep me from losing any value. And and so uh, it's it's that's the over the overreach I think of uh, environmentalism. Uh, in one sense, I think this the the environmental movement prospered as a result of recruiting these homeowners. They've become much more influential in Washington, in Sacramento, and in, in in Albany. Uh, uh, but maybe they're a little too influential in their literal backyards. Uh, when some change has to happen, uh, when when some new development. Not a, not not quite the uh, '50s Levittown developments, but something a little more uh, accommodating to people uh, uh, moving into your community uh, has to happen, and, and 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 that's gotten to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think it relates to this issue of exclusion, right? And exclusion is one of these concepts. I think that our opinion of it really depends on who's doing the excluding and who's being excluded. Right. So if if this is, you know, you know a, a local group in Hawaii who's trying to prevent a new big development, which is going to price them all out of the area they've lived for many, many years, that's one thing. And as you said, nimbyism can be heroic. But if it's, you know, well off folks who are trying to make sure that they can optimize their retirement accounts and all that stuff by by excluding folks who don't have as much money as them that feels pretty different and i think something else that you mentioned bill is is the i mean there's several things going on here once right there's this is also a limitation on on formal policy because formal policy can often be co-opted by the people who have more wealth and power and so there's this kind of rhetoric sometimes that oh if formal formal policy can be kind of apolitical because it's written down it's consistent and so it's just going to get applied now, what do you mean by formal policy here you're talking about a master plan for a metropolitan area or something yeah or well no i'm, I'm thinking about the environmental laws that were used to justify the 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 
anti-growth uh, movements. Okay, so those CEQA, for example, yes. California Environmental Quality Act, or or Section yeah. or Act seventy in New York, where right, and, and like this that. is still being like this is still happening in lots of places, right? Like people are saying, well, you can't build those windmills or that solar um, because it's bad for the environment. You need to pass some, you know, it, it, we need a environmental impact statement before you want to do this, and so. And that's, that's something I've thought, I've thought a fair amount about is that w- when we're thinking about passing important in, like laws, and I'm generally in favor of environmental policy and laws, we still have to think about issues of the distribution of wealth and power and inequality because the people who have more wealth and power are going to be able to disproportionately benefit from. We saw this during the pandemic, too, right? Like when we were trying to give out money to help people with the pandemic, some people were able to kind of co-op that more for themselves and others. So that seems to be an important thread here. But the other thing you mentioned, Bill, also in your writing is that no one wants to, This, you know, the maybe the most obnoxious aspect of this can be something we see all the time, which is the, the masquerading of self-interest as public principle. Well, this is something I've, I've always found interesting when I go, go to meetings, I sometimes go to public meetings about this and, uh, uh, that bringing up house values as a reason to change the zoning laws or or uh, or change the school district line or something like that, bring up houses is 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 generally not acceptable. You bring up values, monetary values, not acceptable. You can bring up almost anything that maps into that we know, or at least I I know is an that economist correlates with knows it. maps into those values, the uh, crime rates or street traffic or school test scores or things like this, all of which influence the the the, the housing market uh, and generally the power market is an exquisite report card for these things, uh, perhaps regrettably, but uh, it's hard hard not to conclude uh, that. Um, uh, and, and and people will talk about those, but they won't generally talk about it. And I've actually, uh, maybe I've just gotten more attuned to it. I actually now do hear talk, people talk about housing values. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, so, so, but, but it's hardly, it's not the thing you live with. I think this is my theory. And I don't, you know, uh, sort of might be of interest to people who do other aspects of environmental policy is that, Reducing things to dollars makes them too divisible. And the mine and vine distinction is like, oh, your house is worth so much more than mine. Well, why don't you pay for it? Blah, blah, blah. If we talk about some collective good, the quality of the schools, the safety of the roads, the access to the uh, backcountry, and so forth, that everybody can participate in without regard to whether they're rich or poor. And most of these people, it's about rich and richer. Uh, uh, but, but inequality plays a big part of why it's difficult, perhaps fortunately, for people to say, hey, this is really all about money. Uh, this is really about maximizing our wealth. Uh, and that's where you, that's where the, the plain spoken economist uh, can can become uh, a less than welcome party at some some of these events. That's really interesting. Yeah. So two other two other um, aspects of your argument that I want to touch on, Bill. One is this idea that when zoning laws were changed to combat growth, they were changed 
in a way to make them very difficult to reverse, this irreversibility. And an aspect of that that occurs to me that's kind of inherent in this process is if you make some laws that if you if you pass some news ordinances that make it harder for people to move into your community, you're essentially keeping out people who would be voting against the laws that you're trying to pass, right? So if we tried to change something in a community, well, people are going to people who, who are here are the people who are allowed to be here by the laws that we passed. And so there's a kind of inherent social path dependence here because people who might vote to change the laws aren't allowed to be here because of the laws. Yeah, I, I, that's a very good insight. I think that's very important that, uh, and, and, and there's kind of, kind of two paths here. One is, given a lot of this occurs outside central cities in the suburbs, the pioneers of the suburbs, I don't mean, you know, the farmers, I mean, the, the, are usually rich, richer than other people. Not necessarily super rich, but they're definitely higher income. They then set up the rules. So I described this uh, uh, in, in, in highly simplified model in, uh, in, in zoning rules about Acton, Massachusetts, which I wrote about before uh, my son moved there. <laughs> I didn't know he was going to move there. Uh, so, hmm. so sorry, Josh. Uh, <laughs> but, but he and his wife are both active persons in the community in Acton, Massachusetts. And, 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 they sort of wrest the uh, the zoning from the pro-development faction there, mostly farmers, landowners, uh, uh, and so forth, who, who want some development. They want reasonable development, but they, they, want, want, to, they want to get out of the dairy business. Uh, uh, and uh, and, and they, uh, the newcomers eventually wrest the control from, from the, the old timers, and, and, and they take control. And their question, the question you're asking here is, well, what about the next newcomers? What about the other people who didn't quite arrive in time to take advantage of the moderate-priced houses on half acres? Now they're looking at a lower stock of houses on one- and two-acre lots and some places that are even more restrictive. Uh, uh, that, that doesn't quite seem fair. I, I, I won't defend that. I don't say that this is a problem. Uh, 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 to to be uh, to be had. Uh, the, the other issue that I think that's parallel but related is that it isn't just the super rich who want to exclude people. Any lots of communities, regardless not regardless of their income level, but mostly uh, even if if they're low income homeowners, they're still homeowners. They still want to protect things. It may be possible because they're low income to persuade them with some side payments to build condominiums or so forth nearby or to rezone it and things unfavorably. Uh, and and uh, uh, but so, but nonetheless, they care about their asset. They care about their community. Uh, and, and so I think it's, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to, move zoning out of the conversation of the overall distribution of income and wealth. It is indeed part of it. In fact, some people say it's quite a major part of it. It's not me. It's not, it's not, my, it's not, my, not my department. Uh, but within the local area, 
owning a house anywhere in any community is gives you a motive. Uh, even if you're, even if it's a modest bungalow uh, or or even a, a a mobile home that you happen to own the property to, so you actually uh, can get some capital gain out of it. So I think I think we don't want to just say it's it's the, the rich against the poor here. It's rich community. It's it's communities against people outside the community. Mm-hmm. The people who have it's like generational in a sense that. Uh, 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 th- there's another generation of people who are kind of like us, who we're we're, we're keeping out. Uh, okay. okay, that gets us onto this this other issue of of renting versus homeowning, and this is so one of the arguably, at least among economists, arguably the most powerful intuition with respect to the value of property rights, or at least one of them is. That if I own something as opposed to say renting it, I that vests my interest in the future of whatever it is I own and the things around it more than if I'm renting it. Because I'm renting it, maybe I, you know, I'm here for two years and then I leave. And so I don't care as much. I don't internalize um the different value streams that might uh I might receive in the long run from how I behave now. Right. I did notice. Uh, in the, I think the PDF of the chapter you sent me, you cite some work that in some cases, renters do act in, like they do develop a sense of community and are uh, able to act collectively. I'm now wondering whether that relates to issues of rent control and the fact that many renters actually do stay in their houses for quite a long time, irrespective of whether they own them or not. Um, but that strikes me as an important another like essentially another corollary important theoretical question because we want people to care about the communities they live in right yeah i think what i dwell on that a little bit in the home voter book not not the one not, not zoning rules of of why uh, what would make renters behave more like homeowners and the answer, I actually outraged a few economists by saying something nice about rent control. <laughs> I don't think the rent control is a great idea. It's not a it's very bad way to in, encourage housing to be constructed. Um, but but it does make uh, uh, make people in the longer term uh, think think more like homeowners. They think in periods of uh, longer longer periods of time, and in many ways, that's a good thing. If you're right. in a rent control department in New York City, for example, you have an expectation that you can stay there for a long time, maybe even bequeath it to your children. Mm. Uh, 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 and so when somebody uh, uh, proposes something that trashes the park near you, you're going to be up in arms about it. I mean, you might be up in arms about it anyway, but you also think that's 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 not just a park I'm going to see for the next Three months this is a park I'm going to see and visit and take my kids to or whatever uh, for three, four, ten years perhaps. And so, so rent control does give extends the estate for a longer period of time uh, and, and and makes renters into more like homeowners. I think that's to some extent why you're seeing renters uh, more active. 
I think it's also the, 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 the culture that you get in some cities, uh, in San, San Francisco, for example, where a lot of this evidence comes from, that renters are almost as influential as homeowners in, 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 in ways, in opposing development, which, which is problematic, uh, is that there's a culture of activism. The tools are easily available. The culture encourages it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm, I have my non-economist hat here on, but but that's why that's that's why it's not it's good not to be too married to economists. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Bill, I want to make sure we touch on another uh, issue that you mentioned, which is conservation easements. Yes, yes. Can you talk to me about the role that they play in this story? And this might be a good time to distinguish something between. Uh, conservation easements and other private easements and zoning that a lot of people seem not to understand. I was actually was reading a book about somebody who says Houston's wonderful because they've got private easements and conservation easements to control things and is a libertarian type and they don't have the zoning. Uh, they do accomplish sometimes the same kind of thing. They are about the use of land. Zoning is what is called a police power, derives from the power of the state government. It devolves to the municipality, and the state government can take it away from the municipality or modify it if they want. And But zoning is coercive and non-compensatory. That is, if we adopt a zoning law, we have a zoning law in Hanover that has zoned the rural residential areas to 10-acre minimum lot size, which is has, you know, has effects. Uh, in, in in housing prices, uh, that's that's a law that none of the landowners had to consent to or could consent to. Now, in practical terms, when Hanover adopted this this law like 15 years ago, uh, they didn't want to irritate the landowners too much because they do vote. They had friends who vote and so forth, and so they threw them some sop of of. Uh, oh, you can have three acre minimum lot size if you're already on a public road. But if you need to build a road to build in housing, you 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 have uh, the rule is ten acres, which basically means it's not get developed. Um, and and for some people, that's that was the intention. It's wonderful, um, but that zoning can change if the town meeting, the town government, uh, the plebiscite that we have every year. Uh, uh, is 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 presented with a proposed change in the zoning laws. The planning board has approved this to change that ten-acre ten minimum lot size to quarter-acre lots on half the areas, um, and the voters, for some reason, decide it's a good idea. It happens. So zoning is non-consensual, but zoning can also be changed. So conservation easements or private easements, covenants, and and uh, things of that like. Servitudes are what they are called in ancient law, by the way, the law of servitudes, um, mm. involves private parties, where years ago I have I actually did a servitude with my neighbor. Uh, we both live in a, uh, the edge of the uh, uh, single-family uh, zone area. We're, we're both in a general residence. Uh, but neither uh, I don't have enough land to to make it multiply in the housing he did, and I persuaded him that we should form a covenant between just the two of us to to uh, uh, use our property only for single family use. 
uh, I won't go into the details of this, but that that, that pertains only to he, him and me. Uh, the government cannot change that. If they think that is bad policy, that the official and, and his neighbor ought to, ought to be able to build apartments there because after all, it's close to downtown and we need more rental housing. They can't do that. They can't change it. Only the owners of the property can change it. So that's consensual. And that's a lot of what Houston, Texas, which is famous for not having a zoning, the only big city that doesn't have zoning, but they have lots of these uh, protective covenants and and they're administered by community associations. They're sometimes called large scale, but they involve private consensual landers. And libertarians kind of love this stuff because it is consensual. It's very difficult to set up in areas that are already developed. So I'll just continue my story of setting up covenants. Uh, uh, I thought about uh, maybe I can get other neighbors to agree to the same thing. You know, this is back in the 70s. I just bought a house and I was a super dimby. So I want to, I want to establish this, uh, uh, the, the, these covenants just in case the, uh, the zoning changes in ways we don't like. And it turns out it's really hard to do to get other people on board. They'll say, no, I don't really want to do it or... In, in, in my case, it actually was just locating them. You know, he's in a nursing home and, and uh, it, it, the, the property was un, unavailable. So they're very hard to set up in places that are already developed. That's where zoning cuts the Gordian knot. So if you want to make someplace more restrictive or less restrictive, zoning just does it. And that's the law. And protective covenants are hard to set up, but they're also really hard to get rid of. Now, in the 70s and 80s, and I don't think it's coincidental they showed up this way, a new species of, of private covenants developed called conservation easements. And I'm told by my law professor, Fenn, this is kind of a misnomer because it's not really an easement. It's, it's, a, it's just an agreement not to develop. What they do is I have a, uh, 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 a, a, a farm, an open space, and um, and my neighbor would rather I didn't develop it, uh, and because because his house is situated in a way, and my neighbor has lots of money, and he says, um, uh, uh, "Let's put that in. Uh, let's agree that you won't develop it," and he pays me some money or some some kind of consideration to to not develop it, and we memorialize this in our deeds. Now, that's not quite enough for him, though. He wants to be sure that this deed will go on for a long, long time, indefinitely, in fact. And so he sets up what's called a conservation easement, with my consent, and gives it to the Hanover Conservancy. I think you can do that, uh, which is like the Nature Conservancy. They accept these deeds, these, these, these conditions. They accept the obligation that continues indefinitely to not develop the land. And it's part of both of our deeds. And we can't get rid of it. The owners of these places cannot get rid of it. The Honorable Conservation Commission, or the Honorable Conservancy, owns this deed. And they are the trustees of this. And they can't get rid of it either. So why would you want to put you know why would you want to do this rather than just between you well one reason you'd want to do it is 
and you and perhaps other people adjacent to land is when you're selling your house, you see a buyer and the buyer says, well, it's a lovely view. It's a great feel over there. It's just wonderful. But how do I know it's going to last? If I say it's zoned for that and my buyer is prospective buyer says is knowledgeable and says, yeah, the zoning can change. I, I might see condominiums there next next after I buy and I'm stuck. I bought a piece of property that I thought was wonderful and it's not so wonderful. And I say, well, we've got a covenant with people nearby uh, that they can change by a super majority. That's actually how many of these covenants are actually work administered. He says, well, I'm, that's that's a little better, but how about if you could never change it? How about never? So the attraction of the conservation easement is it's the closest thing to never, to steal, to, to putting the land in a condition that the law says, and, and, and it runs over generations. It runs to successive, you know, the, the, the key to... Uh, servitudes is that they are obligations that whoever buys the land is obligated to conform to. If you've got that, then the next the the buyer will say, "Oh, okay. Well, that's like that's the closest thing to having a permanent to, to almost my owning it." So so conservation easements have become popular because they can't be reversed. Now. I have, you know, this you know, This is me. This is not the general feeling about conservation easements. Most of the literature on conservation easements, um, uh, legal literature, is the Hanover Conservancy or whoever owns it might make a mistake in administering it. And they might allow some stuff that isn't there or they might not maintain it the way it's supposed to be maintained. Sometimes these are affirmative obligations as well as passive obligations. And and the, the covenant's purpose will be will will not be well served. I, I don't think I don't think they're wrong about that. My problem with this is suppose in a hundred years somebody says, we really need that field. We are we are running out of land and for for housing in this particular community. There are people who need to work in this vital industry down the street, and they can't get there. And uh, uh, and they're willing to pay substantial amounts to the holder of the easement if it's been drafted properly. That's almost impossible, and that I think is a kind of hubris that we need to avoid. Mm. I don't think these these things should go indefinitely. Now, so so there, there are people, uh, have you ever skied at Green Woodlands? I have, yeah. Okay. Uh, Mr. Green, I've, I've, I've talked to, uh, I think it's Dave Green, I'm not sure. I've talked to him about all the land he bought. He, he bought up half of Lyme and most of Dorchester. And whole community, he's got thousands tens of thousands of acres and he is a highly charitable guy he builds these uh uh, uh ski areas uh, cross-country ski areas maintains them uh, uh builds cabins stocks them with hot chocolate <laughs> he's a wonderful guy uh uh and uh and he, and you can ski there free it's it's it's, it's free and so i asked him do, do you have a conservation easement for this and he said no I want to leave something to my heirs and things might change. 
and I want to be able to do things that I can't anticipate. So why is he upset about not having a copy? I mean, he owns it. He can just put it in his own deed if he wants to. The U.S. tax system, coming back to another tax problem, federal tax problem, if you donate land for conservation purposes, the U.S. government does not want you to donate this land, get the big tax deduction you'll get for it, and then turn around 10 years later and sell it and make a nice capital gain and blah, blah, blah. They right. can grab some of that money back, but really not that much. It's really hard to get the assessments right. And so they put it in a rule. Yeah, this is the IRS rule. And I think I, there, there's talk of changing it, but I, not, not, not that much, uh, is that if you're going to donate a conservation easement to the Hanover Conservancy, or in the case of, you know, maybe there's a Lyme Conservancy or the Nature Conservancy, it has to be irreversible because we don't want you doing the pitch and switch on us. Right. So the U.S. government has made these things and sort of faced with no tax deduction or paying taxes on it, you know, the income fully, which which Mr. Green is willing to do, although he's not, he's not that happy about it. Uh, the, the U.S. government forces you to make this choice, and many people do put these things in, in, in a form of property rights that is very problematic. That uh, I say very problematic because the problem that property law solved, I won't say solved, but addressed in England were these feudal titles that just went on forever. And so the town is expanding or somebody wants to do something and you run into this thicket of, of, of uh, inalienability, constraints of inalienability, uh, these, these all sorts of things that ran with the land, ran forever, the, the nth generation, and, and you can't get rid of them. And so, so England has dealt with this to some extent by just extinguishing these titles. And hmm. and in the process, not all of them, but but if they want to do, they just extinguish them. Say, I'm sorry, we're 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 doing something else now, uh, and and that's that's sort of you know that's that's the big bomb you could drop on this. I, I think that would be very unlikely in this country to do this, partly because these aren't done by feudal you know by monarchs and their vassals and and earls and princes. They're done by ordinary people, uh, and. Uh, and, and to frustrate what they want to do, uh, uh, I think is uh, uh, is not very popular. The one way you could get modify a conservation easement is use eminent domain. Mm. Eminent domain is the cutting torch that that goes through everything in 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 property law. So you could have the government condemn it. Uh, that's that's a very difficult procedure. Uh, and a hard sell, especially eminent domain, is one of the less popular uh, uh, uses of government, uh, partly because it has been abused, uh, uh, tearing down neighborhoods, you know, low-income neighborhoods, and giving it to corporations for a song, and then the corporations don't deliver anyway. Uh, I'm talking about Pfizer in New London, uh, Connecticut, this famous case of uh, New London Development Company. Uh, and, and that was a scandal. I, I, you know, that was an abuse of eminent domain, and so eminent domain has a bad reputation. Uh, but but uh, that may be the only way you can deal with improvidently granted conservation easements. Now I, I, I say 
this is one of my bugbears. I and, and, and a handful of other property people uh, think about this stuff. Most other people say, that's a fine thing. Nathan's Garden across the street from me, uh, privately owned uh, memorial garden to, to you know, donated by wonderful people. Uh, uh, and, and Mrs. Hall and donated to the town with the condition that it had a conservation easement. So the park will be there forever. And I'm thinking, and the maintenance for that park will be, and and what happens if people start gathering in that park that we need to have some new regulation about it? So, I'm, but I'm the guy who thinks that way and apparently not too many others. All right, fair enough. Could we conclude by with two final questions? One is, what are the questions and challenges and developments that interest you now to follow, um, either with respect to the concept, the the issues we've been addressing now academically, or in Hanover where we both live? Are you still kind of following everything that's happening here? Are you interested in what people are still writing? What what uh, What's getting you up intellectually and personally in the morning? I'm still on the zoning board. And so I'm, I'm reasonably well informed what ha what's happening. And I go to meetings. I'm actually talking to a realtors group in a couple months about uh, is local control a good idea? Uh, uh, and... Um, I, I don't know what I don't know what their take on it would be. Uh, uh, so 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 yes, I, I am paying attention to that. Uh, the other thing that gets me up is 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 I'm working on what I thought was a completely different topic, which was county government. How did we get counties? Where do they form and so forth? It turns out there are there are home voters out there, but they're on the other side. They're the wildly pro development people who want to create a county seat so their land values go up. Uh, so these are the wildcat people who say, "Oh my God, I've got this thing out in in in, in central uh, Kansas, and I need to attract people. The best way to do that is make it a county seat, get a county formed around me, and keep it from from my rivals." So wow. it's, it's land use, it's, it's wild west land use, uh, although it occurs in lots of different places. Uh, the, the the local thing that's attracted me, then it, it sort of keeps my keeps my hand in zoning both locally and nationally, is this question of how do we deal with the excesses of local control, the the NIMBY attitude, the, the bad NIMBY attitude. And I say there's a good NIMBY attitude, uh, the bad NIMBY attitude that says we don't want workforce housing uh, or we think it's a wonderful idea, but we should put it over in Lebanon, please, uh, or, or, or out in Canaan. Uh, we, we don't want to crowd our schools and, 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 and otherwise inconvenience people. And, and that... that I, what I've found interesting in following this issue, and, and I, this is an attitude that I think I've seen for a long time, what's different about the last five years, maybe less than maybe about that, is that now people are a little embarrassed about that and think, you know, maybe we do need workforce housing. Maybe we could, maybe the state which has a wider view of these things should have more of a role in, in local zoning. Now you, you ask your zoning administrator, they say the state's clueless. I mean, one advantage of local control is you know, local conditions. Uh, you know, I know that tract on Moose Mountain better than anybody down in Concord. Um, uh, uh, but the, uh, uh, 
there's an awareness that the housing crisis, and, and now it's really reached crisis forms, I think, when, when people with decent salaries, good salaries, in fact, can't live in my town. Uh, I'm, I'm upset about that. I think that's a... I mean, I'm upset that lots of people can't live there, but now it's really getting to be, uh, how, how do we actually manage our town? Uh, we have a two, new town manager in Hanover who can't afford a house here. He's paid a decent salary, $160,000 a year. It's public record. Uh, uh, he ought to be able to afford a house in the town that he works for, in fact, runs. And, and at least for now, he cannot. Uh, and he's having a, an employment crisis. Everybody in his department, I've heard them talk, uh, I was on the finance committee, so I can get, get around to these things. Uh, uh, that everyone in the department that are understaffed, and the entire staff issue is not the salary; it's it's the housing. Can't get people to come up here. They say that's a wonderful community; it looks good. That's the good. That's the upside of, of zoning. Helps make your community look good. Uh, but if it goes too far, uh, it makes it completely unaffordable to people. And things that you want happen, like running a parks and rec program, are not happening here. Uh, because housing has become uh, absurdly expensive. Now, part of this crisis is the COVID crisis. I don't want to say it's all just about zoning, but COVID is kind of in abatement and the housing crisis is not. The other thing I want to say just about the, the, the state is I'm seeing some encouraging things by the states. California has moved aggressively after sitting on their heels and just saying, oh, do another plan. Uh, you have to have a required plan for this, not actually to do it. Now they're putting teeth in their plans and they're building things. They're doing infill developments. You know, I had I had a friend in California who was complaining about the infill development in a suburban neighborhood. And I said, look, Paul, you, you have to, <laughs> yeah, you, you had it good for a while and they're not going to do anything terribly bad to your, to, to your neighborhood as a result. Uh, other places have done this thing called uh, accessory dwelling units, which is basically making a one-family house into a one-and-a-half-family house. Now, you can say, well, that's half a house uh, and then not really responding to the housing crisis. I'm an economist. I think in continuous terms here, people who would have bought or would have uh, uh, been deterred entirely or would have settled for rental housing in, 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 in Hanover, for example, uh, now can find an accessory dwelling unit. And here's how the accessory dwelling unit, I was shocked actually when this passed, I, and I wasn't a part, part of the story. Uh, accessory dwelling units were presented to the New Hampshire legislature, largest legislature in the country, 400 people, uh, plus the Senate, which is relatively small. Uh, uh, so it was basically a giant town meeting. And and they're, of course, very locally attuned because that's where they come from. Uh, and it's presented to the legislature that your kids can't live in your community anymore. And it's not just Hanover and Bedford and Amherst, the, the high-income communities. It's like getting into to, to Manchester and, and, and Colebrook and so forth. They, they can't live. The, 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 your land use regulations are in the way. Now, we're not proposing you get rid of your land use regulations. We are proposing that we respect that in any of your residential areas where you allow single-family towns, you have to allow at least one accessory dwelling unit per house. Have to. It's mandated by the state. We cannot say no. On the zoning board, we, we can do some things if the unit is separate from the house and, and require placement and so forth, but not much. 
So this is revolutionary in my mind. I'm just was was shocked by this. And here's how it was sold, and here's how it was persuaded. Number one, they appealed to the people who weren't there, who were actually related to you. Your kids, your grandkids can't live in your community, can't buy a house like yours or anything close to it. The second thing they did was make it utterly universal. Every town is subject to this. No exceptions. And so, I mean, it is a kind of a blunt instrument, I got to say. I'm not sure Manchester, if I owned a house in Manchester, that I'm actually, that's <laughs> appropriate in high-density areas and so forth. But what made it pass, what, and I've talked to people who steered it through the legislature, uh, what, what made it acceptable was everybody has to do it. There's a third acceptability argument, and this is much more controversial when I tell this to people in other states of you shouldn't have done that. Not me, but the, the state was you can, as a community, make a regulation that says that for every ADU, the owner of the house has to live in either the original house or the ADU. Mm. So I could build an ADU next to my house. If I wanted to retire, my house is actually pretty small, but if I wanted to downsize, I could build an ADU, not a big unit, but it's got cooking facilities, a couple of bedrooms and so forth. It was decent housing and ran out the house. But I have to live there. I have to sign a covenant, in fact, and register it with the town that I will live there. Basically, this, so this doesn't turn it into a, an Airbnb arrangement or it doesn't turn into basically a two-family house where, where remote investors buy it. Yeah. So this... This is a little bit of the poison pill to the remote investor who would say, ah, Hannah, a wonderful place. We can buy housing. They're doing it anyway, but now, now all houses are, are available where we can buy two family houses, rent them out and pour the money in and not worry about the quality of the neighborhood because we're sitting down here on Wall Street. It, and, and so the, that, that, that owner occupancy requirement was, was a crucial aspect of this. People in Oregon tell me that's unfair. That's not really making the housing available as it should be and so forth. And, and, and Oregon has, has a rule like this, but you don't have to live in it. So it's basically changing all single-family houses into two-family houses mm. uh, uh, with, with sort of small units. Uh, and I think you know, that just wouldn't pass in our political culture. Uh, I, you know, I don't know the political culture of Oregon well enough. I know some of it, but uh, the oddity is it's it's actually a hard sell in Vermont, which is a, they they have the same housing crisis, and there are people pushing for ADUs, and but they're getting a lot of pushback. Interesting, uh, which I found kind of interesting. Of the, I thought I would thought the culture of Vermont would be similar in that respect to, to that of New Hampshire. Yeah, I've I've since moving here ten years ago, I've sometimes been surprised at how the. I mean, people who aren't um, familiar with Vermont, New Hampshire, and the reputations they have won't really understand this. But often, you, you're surprised at what when one state does one thing and the other one doesn't, just like the, like this. Well, thanks, Bill. Are there any final threads that you want to make sure we wrap up? Things that we started talking about but didn't really uh, finish, or are there any final concepts you want to make sure you want to explain before we we wrap up the interview? Um. No, I, I guess I, I bring up the question occasionally of, of I go to conferences occasionally and meet some libertarian friends uh, uh, 
and they asked me, why are you in a zoning board? You're a critic of zoning here. Why, why are you, you know, you're administering the, the, the beast. Uh, and part of it is, well, it's, it's, it's interesting to do. It keeps my hand in and so forth. Uh, but I think you can't shy away from, from uh, controversy. You can't, just because you can't get everything you want, doesn't mean you should uh, just wash your hands of it. So, so I, I think Hanover zoning is a problem uh, I, I don't express that. I mean, I occasionally express that at, at, at zoning hearings, uh, at least when we're deliberating, that we are too we are too fussy. There's a gentle word I put on it. Um, but I think um, if there are, uh, there are people like me uh, uh, who are aware of these things and have some skill, uh, some knowledge at least of what's going on, that you uh, you should go and participate. And, and, at least as, as best you can. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.